The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. This is Stephen Lalovich, creator of the sci-fi health podcast, Awake the Future. The show is about a small-town nutritionist, Adam Weiss, who receives a series of letters from his reincarnated future self, describing five rituals that will save humanity from self-destruction. Adam risks everything to start a podcast in which he shares the letters and the rituals with the world. This is episode six, The Earth Ritual. In this episode, Adam is navigating his relationship with his soulmate assassin, Adrian, as the two attempt to bring down a corrupt world power called the Corporation. If you have an interest in this story, I'd suggest stopping now and starting from the beginning. But if you feel like jumping in the deep end, here we go. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Awake the Future. I'm Adam Weiss. I suppose I should start by telling you about all the things that have happened that might affect the fate of humanity, but instead I'm going to start by telling you about my relationship with Adrian. I'm hesitant to share these details with you. It's not my nature to want to talk about my personal life with strangers, much less the world, but I want to be transparent with you. I don't know which parts of this journey are most important to share. Maybe it will be my personal story that will help you do more with the rituals in your life. At the very least, I want to be honest with you. Even though Adrian and I are soulmates, it doesn't mean our relationship is some perfect fairy tale. There's a fair amount of tension between us right now. I guess Edgar warned me about this. You would think that having the fate of the world on my shoulders would be my main concern, but I'm only human, and I'm easily distracted by emotions of the heart. My relationship with Adrian weighs heavily on me right now. We find ourselves in a strange place where day-to-day -day life blends with paranormal phenomena and international espionage. It's all very surreal, like my life exists in a movie sometimes and just regular, normal life the rest of the time. A couple nights ago, during one of those moments of relative normalcy, Adrian and I made dinner together and had an enjoyable time drinking wine and listening to music. When we sat down to eat, I became lost in her eyes. I felt like looking into her eyes, I was looking into her soul. In that moment, I felt a connection with Adrian that goes beyond just this lifetime. I told her that night, for the first time, that I love her. I told her that I love her in this life and across lives. I didn't get the response I was hoping for. A few seconds of silence passed, which felt like an eternity, before Adrian replied that she loved me too. We finished our dinner with minimal conversation as Adrian seemed to become more distant the rest of the night. It felt like she was a thousand miles away. I should have known better. She doesn't like to talk about her feelings. I think she has conditioned herself to suppress a lot of those things. I can't blame her. I know she carries with her a lot of regret and negative emotion. Her life has not been easy both as a child and now. I would probably try to distance myself from my emotions in those circumstances too. But it's the moments when I look deeply into her eyes or when she cracks a genuine smile 
that I see beyond the wall she has spent a lifetime building up around her. She rarely shows her true, vulnerable self, but when I do get a glimpse of it, I feel that strong connection with her. I want to see more of that side of her, but the wall around her is pretty thick. When I feel the deeper connection between us, it makes me think about how our multitude of past encounters have shaped our souls into what they are today, how we helped and also likely hurt each other at different times throughout the evolution of our souls. I wonder about what is meant to happen between us in this life. The term soulmate is usually used to refer to someone you fall in love with, but soulmates can share other types of relationships too, friends, parents and children, perhaps even enemies. Each soulmate relationship has a purpose, one that helps the individuals achieve something greater within themselves or the world. I'm grateful that Adrian has joined me in practicing the rituals each day. She tells me that she continues to feel they are benefiting her. I think the rituals are also helping us both stay grounded. They are a constant in our lives amid the chaos. They actually might be helping us confront the chaos. They are also something we can do together, which is always meaningful, at least to me. Each morning we go outside on the patio and watch the morning sunrise. We sit in our chairs for at least a half hour, absorbing the sunlight and silence. Even though we don't talk during that time, I feel that sharing in that ritual makes us more connected. There's something magical about sharing the dawning of a new day together. As much as the rituals might be helping us as individuals and as a couple, I know that Adrian is still struggling. It's hard for me to see her pull away as she tries to cope with so much on her own. I know she spent her life trusting only herself and taking care of her problems alone, and while I know she can handle it, I want to be there for her. I want to be someone she feels comfortable confiding in and relying on. It may just take time to build that trust. It doesn't make it any less difficult for me in the meantime. The more she pulls away, the more I want to offer my help. I have to try to avoid pressing her, though. If she wants to take these things on by herself, I have to do my best to respect that. I suppose this could be a good thing. Maybe I need to compartmentalize my emotions much like Adrian does, or else I might get too distracted from the part of my life that entails trying to save humanity. Isn't it weird how love can distract us from everything else, no matter how important those other things are? Maybe that's not such a bad thing either. Maybe we need love to distract us sometimes. I asked Adrian to read what I just read to you before I recorded it. I was pretty nervous to see a response. I'm sorry you're having a hard time dealing with all this, she said, but I need space to work through these things on my own. Of course, I said, I want you to have what you need. I'll try to give you more space. That's what I told her, and I meant it, but it's not easy to give someone space when you're physically confined to the same safe house. We both rarely leave the house other than when Adrian goes to get food, water, and supplies. The safe house isn't small, but it's not huge either. We've got a living room, kitchen, dining room, bedroom, and an office. That's it. We spend most of our days apart doing our own things. Adrian spends a lot of her time in the office researching the corporation, while I spend my time either outside on the patio or in the dining room working on the podcast. In the evenings, we spend more time together. We take turns making dinner, and after the sun sets, we light some candles and either play chess or just talk.
I try to keep the conversation light, as I know there are some topics Adrian doesn't want to discuss. It just isn't possible to give her a lot of physical space right now, but I can try to give her space in other ways. Although we're usually doing our own things during the day, Adrian and I spent a few days together recently preparing for our mission. The plan was to infiltrate the corporation's compound and obtain documents that include the names of the corporation's board members and their allies around the globe. In the days leading up to the mission, Adrian continued to have the same recurring dream that I mentioned in the last episode. It became more and more vivid as the day of the mission approached. She said it became clear to her that the dream was about what might happen during our mission at the corporation's compound. She saw us inside the compound wearing the exact same clothes and gear that we would take with us that night. The dream still didn't show her what happened after we were held at gunpoint. She only saw us being escorted down a hallway, and that's when she would wake up. We talked about what it could mean. Could her dream really be foreshadowing future events? We thought if it was possible to have dreams about past lives, why not dreams about future events within one's current life? We considered how Edgar said our perception of time is something created by consciousness, that the future isn't really all that different from the past. That means it just might be possible through a dream state or other altered form of consciousness to see what happens before it actually does. But as we have seen with Edgar's letters, the future can be changed. Even if this was a true premonition of future events, that didn't mean the future was set in stone. That was our hope anyway. As a result, Adrian went out of her way to create a precise and detailed plan to prevent either of us from ever being held at gunpoint. At the very least, she made sure I was kept out of harm's way. If anyone was going to be held at gunpoint, it would be her and her alone. So about a week ago, after we had the plan set and ready to execute, we traveled from our safe house to the corporation's compound in the Swiss Alps, where world leaders frequently meet. Since no meetings were currently taking place, according to the intel Adrian obtained through her sources, the security team was operating at lower capacity. However, this still wasn't going to be an easy mission. There would be armed guards at the gate of the compound, as well as security personnel stationed on the roof and throughout the corridors of the building. Of course, I had never infiltrated any compounds in my life, other than in the occasional video game, so I had no idea what I was getting myself into. On paper, the plan was easy enough and relied mostly on Adrian's skill and expertise, but as you know, things don't always go according to plan. In the days leading up to our travels, Adrian and I went out to a secluded forest so I could get some practice using a gun. Even though our plan didn't require me to use it, Adrian insisted I have some basic skills with the handgun she gave me, just in case the unexpected occurred. While we were out there, Adrian told me something that hit me hard. She said, Adam, you're too nice. I've been told many times before that I'm a nice guy, but I always took it as a compliment. I see now how being nice can be more of a vice than a virtue. People think being nice and being good are synonymous, but they're not. There are times when being good requires one to not be nice, especially when faced with something that is the opposite of good, something evil. In my old life, before receiving that first letter from Edgar, I lived in a world that rewarded being nice. It rewarded following the rules and doing what was expected, I always heeded those expectations, listening to the teacher in school, following orders at work, and so on. 
All these behaviors lined up with my worldview, one in which the world rewarded those who followed the rules. In my mind, the only way society could function was to follow the established order. Defying the rules only led to chaos. I still believe that following the rules is generally a good thing to do. However, there are times when the rules need to be broken. Someone who is too nice may not have the courage to stand up and break the rules when necessary. Niceness can therefore become a burden that holds one back from doing what is right. When Adrian said I was too nice, it was like a punch to the gut. I realized in that moment my identity as a nice guy was wrong. I realized I needed to become a better version of myself, a version that has the courage and strength to break the rules when necessary. I needed to shed the part of me that felt obligated to follow the rules. I needed to shed the part of me that was afraid to break the rules. In that moment, I realized if I was going to accomplish what I needed to accomplish, I could no longer do only what I was told. As hard a realization that was, it's even harder to implement. I feel like I have another side of me within myself that I've never let out. There's a part of me that has no problem going down his own path, regardless of what rules he breaks. He's in me. It's just that I've kept him locked up my whole life. It's like a muscle that is atrophied from disuse. I need to exercise this defiant side of myself in order to do what I need to do. I can't help but wonder how different my life would have been had I not shut away that side of myself. It would have been more difficult to restrain that side, using it only at the right times, as opposed to just locking him up and throwing away the key, but I think I could have found the right balance. I think I can still find that balance, at least with some practice. There are times in our lives when we have to reject the rules and convention. The way that everyone else is doing it, the way that everyone expects you to do it, isn't always the best way to do something. But you had better be right when you choose to let that defiant side of yourself out of its cage. If you're not smart about why and when you do that, well, I guess that's how people end up in prison, or worse. I admire Adrian for having cultivated that dark side of herself. She has trusted that primal instinct, and it's helped her to overcome adversity throughout her life. But Adrian has also been calculating and deciding when to let that side of herself out. She doesn't run around like some impulsive person, defying rules just to defy them. She picks her spots, but when the time is right, she doesn't hesitate to do what needs to be done. Can you help me to bring out that side of myself? I asked her. She said, try to change how you think about yourself. Try to view yourself as someone who has the capacity to do damage. If you only view yourself as a nice guy, then you're viewing yourself as a harmless individual. You can still be nice when it is justified, but it's a greater virtue to be nice by choice than it is to be a harmless individual who has no other capacity. I think she's right, and I've been working on changing my perspective. There are many instances when the easy thing to do is just be nice and carry on, but I now understand where that could lead. It could lead to me being further taken advantage of, or worse, the world around me could fall apart. If I'm okay with just tolerating small evils in the world, others may follow suit, and things might spiral out of control as those small evils multiply over time. This may be part of what led to the world Edgar described in his first letter. I appreciate that Adrian brought these things to light for me. I'm grateful to have her in my life as an example of how to take action when being nice is not the right approach. 
It will take time to develop that capacity within myself, but I think I'll get there. Despite my training with Adrian and going over the plan countless times, I felt ill-prepared for the mission. I felt secure knowing I would be accompanied by a skilled assassin, but you never know about these things. Everything that happened after the moment we landed in Switzerland is still kind of a blur. Adrian has many contacts throughout the world, and we met one in the city who gave us a car that included a weapons cache in the trunk. When he popped the trunk and I saw the arsenal, I felt a little better about our chances. Adrian was unfazed by it all and simply said, that'll do. From there, we drove to a small town in the foothills of the Alps, which was about an hour drive away from the compound. There, we got something to eat and waited until nightfall. That night, we drove toward the compound and parked our car off a side road a few miles away. We hiked through a forested area until we reached the high fence surrounding the perimeter. Near the fence, there was a high hill among the trees. My job was to go to the top of the hill and obtain a position that allowed me a good view of the compound through binoculars. I would be Adrian's lookout, and using our comms, I would help her get inside without being seen. Everything went according to plan as Adrian climbed the fence and approached the compound. She first went to the utility station where she cut power to the main building. I then directed her to an entry point away from the guards. She entered through a ground floor window after using a cutting tool to pierce the glass and reaching in to unlock the latch. I was glad she made it in without being seen, but the next part was more difficult as I had to wait without knowing what was going on inside. Adrian told me it could take up to 15 minutes to get to the central file storage area, find the files, and then make it back out without being seen. I noted the time when she slipped through the window. It was 11.17 p.m. When 11.32 came and passed, I started to panic. That's when I heard the gunshots. They were intermittent and lasted about 60 seconds. Then nothing. It was almost midnight and all was silent. The only conclusions I could draw were that Adrian had either been shot or captured. In our contingency planning, Adrian told me that under no circumstances was I to enter the compound. She told me if she didn't come out within 30 minutes, I should call the number for the contact who gave us the car and the weapons, let him know what happened, and he would take it from there. I didn't do that. I couldn't just make a phone call and hope for the best. I had to do something. It wasn't time to follow the rules. It was time to save my soulmate. About ten after midnight, the power to the facility was restored. A light turned on in the same room where Adrian entered through the window, and I could see her sitting there tied to a chair. Someone was with her in the room, but after the power came back on, he left and closed the door. It looked like a clear path through the lawn to the room. If I could just open the same window and free Adrian, we could get back out before anyone found us. Despite her firm objections to me entering the compound, I scaled the wall and made my way toward the building. I made it to the window, opened it, and climbed through. When Adrian saw me, she forcefully whispered, Get out! That's when it hit me. It was a trap. They knew I was outside and were trying to draw me in. Before I could make a move, the door opened and three men pointed their guns at me. They told me to drop my weapon and sit down. I had no choice but to do what they said. Adrian's premonition was coming true. After they tied me to another chair, they went back out into the corridor. I could hear one of them talking with someone on the phone about what to do next. Whatever they were told, they agreed to it and came back in, untied us, and escorted us downstairs to a basement conference room. 
They shoved us in and locked the door behind us, providing no further details about what they planned to do with us. Inside the locked room, Adrian scolded me. You shouldn't have come for me, she said. You should have just made the call as we planned. With my adrenaline still pumping, I said, You think I'm just going to stand around and let you get hurt? Yes, she said. That's exactly what you were supposed to do. There was no reason for you to enter the compound and risk your life. You're the reason to risk my life, I said. You are worth that risk. Adrian shook her head. No, I never want you to risk yourself for me. I know how to take care of myself. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if anything happened to you. Look, I said, I chose to defy the rules. I chose to come for you. Whatever is going to happen to me, I take full responsibility for it. We can talk about this later, she said. Let's just try to find a way out of here. Adrian said they would probably keep us in there until morning, so we had at least a few hours. She examined the door lock to see if there might be a way to get it open. As she worked on the lock, I explored the room. In the room, there was a large wooden conference table and eight wooden chairs around it. There was nothing on the walls. An empty cabinet stood in the corner opposite the door. I knocked on the walls to try to figure out if there might be a way of breaking through into the next room. Two of the walls seemed to be thin enough that we could break off the chair legs and use them to break through the plaster. I told Adrian, and she agreed. Working together, we broke off the chair legs and used them as pickaxes to break through a portion of the wall near the cabinet and opposite the door. No one else must have been in the basement at the time, or else they certainly would have hurt us in our demolition. It only took a few minutes to create a hole big enough for us to slip through and into the darkness of the next room. From there, we used Adrian's flashlight to navigate back to the main floor. I thought we would head toward the exit, but Adrian turned toward the central part of the building and led us toward the file room. We got there without issue. Adrian knew their filing system and where to find what we were looking for. It only took a few minutes before she found the files and shoved them into the front of her jacket. Then it was time to get out of there. Adrian led us to a large garage where multiple vehicles were parked. She grabbed a set of keys hanging on the wall and pressed the unlock button. The lights on a black SUV flashed. We got in, pressed the garage door button, and drove down the path toward the gate of the walled compound. As we neared the gate, the two armed men at the guard station approached the vehicle, one on the driver's side and the other on my side. I looked at Adrian. We didn't have a way to open the gate from inside the vehicle. It could only be opened from the guard station. Adrian had no choice but to roll down her window. When she did, the guard pointed his gun at her. The next thing I knew, Adrian had his gun in her hand, shot through the passenger side window, and killed the guard standing there. She then turned back to the disarmed guard at the driver's side window and said, Open the gate. He did, and we were off. Adrian drove the SUV like a race car through the winding mountain roads, past where we parked our car, past the small town where we had dinner, and back into the city. We abandoned the SUV in a parking garage, headed straight for the airport, and caught the next flight back. On the plane, Adrian told me that the events at the compound played out exactly as they had appeared in her dream. She was angry at herself for not taking the dream more seriously. She blamed herself for putting me at risk. I told her she did everything she could in the planning, and it was I who put myself at risk in deciding to go in after her. I told her it was my burden to bear, not hers. She then turned to me and said, Thank you for coming for me, but please don't ever do that again. She then nodded off and slept the rest of the flight, but my heart was still racing from the events that had just transpired. I guess she was used to it.
The next day, back at the safe house, we examined the files. They were mostly bank transfer documents, including account numbers. These documents provide a definitive proof of collusion between world governments and also tie many other organizations to the actions of the corporation. They show who's really pulling the strings in world affairs. Even though we now have proof of collusion between the corporation, governments, and other organizations, we didn't get the smoking gun we were hoping for. None of the documents mention specific names of individuals. We were hoping to obtain the names of the board members and the names of individuals within governments to tie these pieces together. There likely isn't much of a paper trail connecting back to individuals, but the bank transfers might be our best chance of finding that proof. It won't be easy to connect the bank account numbers to specific individuals, though. There's a good chance that most of them are shell bank accounts without any way of linking the account to an actual person. Some of the accounts, however, seem to be legitimate, namely the accounts associated with smaller payments. These accounts are likely those connected with individual scientists and journalists participating in the corporation's propaganda campaigns. If we can identify these individuals, then maybe we can trace our way up the chain to the top. It's a long shot and might lead to a dead end. Adrian remains uneasy around the safe house. She hates the fact that she is running out of options to bring down the corporation. She wants more than anything to rectify the harm she has caused. She often has nightmares in which she re-experiences her assassinations. She says that in these nightmares she is both the killer and the killed. She sees herself as the assassin while also standing in place of her victims. The nightmares seem to be her mind's way of trying to carry the burden of both parties. Last night I awoke to what I thought was another one of Adrian's nightmares, only this time I saw her get out of bed and walk into the living room. I followed her. What happened next was quite surreal, but I've grown accustomed to the unexpected lately. It wasn't Adrian in the living room. It was Edgar's wife, Rona, in Adrian's body. Rona told me that Edgar had been taken a few days ago in her world. She said he gave her the letters to share in case anything happened to him. I gave her some paper and a pen to write the letter, which she had memorized. After writing the letter, we sat together and talked for a few minutes. She said, I can see Edgar in your eyes, and then started to cry. I said, because you came back to write this letter, the future you return to will change. Maybe Edgar will be back in your world, or maybe he will have never been taken to begin with. I hope you're right, she said. It's so strange talking to you in Adrian's body, I said. How are things going between the two of you? She asked. Honestly, not so great, I said. Rona took my hand. Whether she admits it or not, she needs you. Don't give up on her, she said, squeezing my hand. After we said our goodbyes, Rona went back to the bedroom to lie down so she could depart from Adrian's body. I stayed up and read the letter before returning to bed. This is the letter from my future self, Edgar, memorized and written by his wife, Rona, through the body of my soulmate, Adrian. Dear Adam, the next ritual is the Earth ritual. Much like we receive energy from the sun, we can also obtain important energy from the Earth. In order to effectively receive that Earth energy, you must be connected to the Earth directly. This means having your feet or other body parts in direct contact with the Earth's surface. Rubber-soled shoes and other non-conductive materials prevent the body from achieving this connection. 
The energies from the sun and the earth work together to charge the human body. The body is able to absorb and utilize more photonic energy from the sun when it is connected to the earth. In order to have a balanced body and mind, we need both the sun energy and the earth energy within us. The energy of the earth also connects us with each other. When you are connected to the earth, you are connected to every other plant, animal, and human who is also connected to the earth. The earth ritual is not a solo act. It is a uniting force that brings us together. It connects us both with nature and with humanity. The microcosm of the human body reflects the macrocosm of the earth. Just as we can obtain energy through physical contact with the earth, we can also obtain and share that same energy through physical contact with each other. This applies to the other rituals as well. The human body produces photonic and electromagnetic energies which we can share with each other much like nature produces and shares them with us. By connecting with nature, you will obtain more of these energies to fuel your own body and consciousness while also having more to share with others in your life. When we are disconnected, we are isolated, but when we are connected, we are one. The fourth ritual is to connect to the earth and to connect as one. Sincerely, Edgar and Rona. This morning I spoke with Adrian about what had happened last night. She didn't say much in response. I couldn't tell if she didn't know what to make of the whole thing or if her mind was still occupied with trying to figure out how to fight the corporation. It's frustrating that the corporation still has a presence in Edgar's world. I wish Adrian and I could do more to take them down and help bring about a future in which Edgar is back with Rona. Right now, the best I can do is share the Earth ritual with you. Maybe that will be enough to bring Edgar back. Like the other rituals, the Earth ritual helps us connect with nature. Throughout most of our history, humans have been connected to the earth. We slept on the ground and walked on the earth with either bare feet or conductive leather-soled shoes. Since the invention of rubber-soled shoes, our connection to the earth has been severed. Not only does connecting to the earth make sense from an evolutionary perspective, there is also a fair amount of research demonstrating its health benefits. The surface of the Earth is negatively charged, and the electrons that flow into the body from the Earth act as antioxidants that help reduce inflammation. Research also shows that being connected to the Earth lowers cortisol levels and has positive effects on heart rate variability, both of which indicate that it helps balance the body's stress response. When you are outside with your bare feet connected directly to the Earth's surface, you are grounded. You can also wear conductive leather-soled shoes, but make sure the insole is also made of leather or other conductive material. Another great way to connect to the earth is by swimming in a natural body of water, like a lake or an ocean. It's also worth noting that concrete is usually conductive, so you may be able to ground yourself on a concrete patio. Wood, however, is not conductive, so a wood deck or patio won't work. However, if the wood is still alive in the form of a tree, then it is a source of free-flowing electrons from the earth, so hugging a tree or climbing a tree can be a healthy habit. There also are grounding or earthing products available on the market that can assist in connecting your body to the earth. If you choose to use these products, make sure you connect them directly to the earth with a grounding rod. Do not connect them to the ground connection of an electrical outlet, as it is common for many ground wires to carry frequencies from the electrical grid. 
It just isn't worth the risk of plugging yourself into the electrical grid like that, so always connect directly to the earth. Adrian and I have a concrete patio outside the safe house where we watch the sun rise with our bare feet connected to the earth. Whenever I'm out in the sun, I try to be connected. Similar to testing for electromagnetic fields, you can also test your connection to the earth. I'll post information about doing this, as well as other resources about the earth ritual, on my site at awakethefuture.com earth. It's really interesting what Rona said about the microcosm reflecting the macrocosm. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it makes sense. You collect nature in your being and then share it with others, much like nature shares it with you. I have to wonder if that's part of what I need to share with Adrian so that she can fulfill her purpose. Maybe it's not just about helping her practice the rituals, but also about sharing with her the energies I obtain from practicing them. I hope you have people in your life with whom you can share your nature. The more time you spend in nature, the more you will have to give to those you love and care about. Better yet, spend time in nature together. It's cool how all the rituals so far tie together. We need sunlight to power our body's battery, which requires pure forms of water and avoidance of artificial fields to be fully charged, and we need to be connected to the earth to get the most from the sun's energy. I can see how bringing all these things together over time can make a huge difference in one's health and ultimately help bring about the greatest potential for human consciousness. I think part of the reason the rituals are so powerful is our ability to share the energies we obtain from practicing them with each other. In that way, the rituals may have an exponential effect as the energies spread out over the network of people in our lives. If we're going to make the most out of practicing the rituals, we have to not only connect with nature, but also connect with others. As I think about the impact of these rituals on one's life and on others, I can't help but wonder if they also have an impact across reincarnations. Maybe practicing the rituals in this life will help to promote a higher state of consciousness in the next life. Maybe the energies we obtain by practicing the rituals can be accumulated and retained for future lifetimes to come. The rituals seem to impact us on such a deep level that they might just create a lasting impact on our souls across future lives. It's pretty profound to think that practicing the rituals in my lifetime may benefit Edgar and his. That's all for now. One more ritual to go. We're almost there. Keep listening, keep sharing, and keep practicing the rituals. Talk to you soon.